You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Moving in. October ends. Against my study wall, the rose hips shrivel. The central heating is like leaves shifting behind the skirting. The boys' woolens and long stockings are laid out for the morning. Since the hour went back, there has been mist, incessant rain. At dusk, the new town comes into its own, a cat at each corner, shady permutations of wives and lovers gliding through its lanes. In bed, we cling to one another and prepare for a long winter. Hello and welcome from your host for the next half hour of poetry and chat about poetry. That'd be me, Colin Waters, the Scottish Poetry Library's podcaster-in-chief. The library has been producing podcasts since March 2009, and it was while looking over past instalments that I realised, somehow, we'd never interviewed Stuart Conn, an especially egregious omission when you recall Conn was, in 2002, appointed the first macker of Edinburgh, where of course the library is based. Luckily, with a new collection, Aspects of Edinburgh, not long out and published by Scotland Street Press, I had, at last, a good excuse to catch up with Conn. An introduction first, though. Stuart Conn was born in 1936, growing up mainly in Kilmarnock, where his father was a minister. He worked at the BBC from 1962, first in Glasgow until 1976, and then Edinburgh, moving there from Glasgow to live in 1977, working mainly as a radio drama producer, becoming head of radio drama until he resigned in 1992. His publications include An Ear to the Ground, which was a Poetry Book Society choice, Stolen Light, which was shortlisted for the Saltar Prize, The Breakfast Room, which became 2011 Scottish Poetry Book of the Year, and a new and selected volume, The Touch of Time, which was published by Blood Axe. One of the notable aspects of Aspects of Edinburgh is that Conn produced a book with illustrator John Knight, who worked as an architect with Historic Scotland, where he honed his drawing skills through observation of Scotland's historic buildings. His images of Edinburgh accompany Conn's poems. I began by asking Stuart about his own history with Edinburgh, seeing as he isn't a native as such. That's right, my mother was born and went to university in Edinburgh. Then when she married, she married my father, who all his life was a, a clergyman, first in Glasgow, then a minister in Kilmarnock. And I think all, all her life, really, she was in exile from Edinburgh. Only when he had died and she came back to Edinburgh, she picked up correspondences with what we thought had been fantasy figures, but were, in fact, school and university friends from all these decades before. At five, my father's job moved to Kilmarnock, so I was at school and brought up in Ayrshire. Poetically, I suppose, the tradition and the music was that of Burns, which created quite a shock when I came eventually to Edinburgh after working in Glasgow for a couple of decades to the to, to have to reattune myself to Ferguson and to such contemporary poets as, as Robert Garioch. Glasgow, not only was I not born and brought up here, but I suppose I had a, a typical naively cynical attitude towards Edinburgh. Looking back, it was really both, from an Ayrshire and a Glasgow point of view, it really coincided with Burns's of yon fair city that queens it o'er our taste, the more's the pity. And on coming to Edinburgh, it took me quite a long time to reconcile myself to the city. I found it quite a radical 
change, cultural and social change. Mm. And yet at the same time, I found it difficult to write poems to start with because I felt I didn't belong. But I made a strange discovery, or a discovery strangely belatedly, that my mother's father had had a licensed grocer's, not as I had always thought in the suburbs where they lived, but actually a couple of stone's throws from here, next door to where the fringe office now is, Bothwell's Close in the High Street. And that suddenly made me, as one of the poems puts it, feel less an interloper than one who has been long away. And from that point, poems tentatively to begin with restarted. So as you say, you know, you've written poems uh, about Edinburgh, uh, before aspects of Edinburgh, your latest collection. So why is it only now that they've coalesced into an entire collection, do you think? They came out sporadically. They came out various degrees of quality, so that one's in common with many people, ones that I had marked A at the time would be filtered out with the passage of time so that instead of accumulating, the more I wrote, the fewer I seemed to finish up with as a representative batch. Also, I tend to respond to landscape and place and predominantly over the years, my poems have been either responses to different places, landscapes in Scotland, in the islands, and abroad, we've holidayed in France and Italy. And the Scottish ones seemed to be a, a little sporadic filtering within that, until I realised that they had accumulated, and I felt it would be good for them, apart from myself, simply to have them all together. And there came a point where, through circumstance, I was very fortunate, in that, as you say, they are now collected, not new to this book, not new in this book, but at least under one roof, as it were, with the attraction of their being, and this, this was part of the significance of the title, with their being alongside drawings and illustrations of Edinburgh, which gave me an added excitement rather than the simply being a selection of my own poems. So one of the things that's noteworthy about the book is that the poems are accompanied by sketches, I wondered, how did it work? Uh, I know that, um, you know, the sketches uh, illustrate the poems. Did the sketches come first, or the poems, or did you and the artist work together? How, did it, how does that, a, a collaboration like this actually unroll? That, I think, would be the customary way, but this was completely the opposite of that. As I was writing my poems in my study, I was often conscious of the fact that a couple of hundred yards along the road, there was a neighbour and friend, John Knight, who, whose career was with Historic Scotland, and who, as an architect, had been responsible for observing historic buildings and selecting the historic buildings that were to be renovated. He also, as his relaxation, did drawings, either pen and ink or, or some in watercolour, of Edinburgh buildings. We received... Christmas cards of some of them, others appeared in exhibitions, and in fact, illustrations by him appear in James Pope Hennessy's biography of Robert Louis Stevenson. So there were not only common factors in the buildings, but in, in the subjects who lived in the buildings. Occasionally we'd say it would be quite nice to have a book together someday, and it didn't materialise, until the deciding factor was that Historic Environment Scotland, as it now is, 
were going to take his drawings into their archive, which meant they wouldn't be accessible. And at that point, uh, slightly last minuteishly, I frantically accumulated them, scanned them, we looked at them, we worked out which poems would go with which, and although they are illustrations, it, 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 it wasn't a question of my providing him with poems of settings which he would then illustrate. We had each independently, totally independently, accumulated our oeuvre, some of which overlap. For instance, I have a Robert Louis Stevenson poem. He has the frontage of Stevenson's house at 17 Harriet Row. There's one where a poem of mine finishes up by referring to John Knox in the New College Square. He has a, a marvellous colour painting drawing of the steps of New College with John Knox slightly out of frame, but the, the two do seem to make a pair. But other than that, they're independent and they complement rather than pairing with one another directly. The question of publisher is always a tricky one. In this case, it seemed obvious to try the Scotland Street Press, because they were local and around a couple of corners from where we lived. They had actually just moved to near Jock's Lodge, which is the other side of Edinburgh. But they responded instantly positively, and from that moment it was a question of organising, their designer taking over, and one real satisfaction, particularly for John, given that his is the visual contribution, we both feel that the book is beautifully designed and produced and nice to look at with a, a panorama of Edinburgh by him on the cover. Mm. It's, it's not a question as such, more an observation, but it's, it's nice to see a poetry collection with illustrations in it. it seem, to me it seems like uh, you might come across that in the 19th century, but the, the recent fashion seems to be to go, to go bare, just poems. Maybe fashion, it may be a publishing thing because the, the, there's the obviously the question of cost if you're reproducing drawings as well. Yes. In, in fact, the, the only ones with poems I have seen have been direct illustrations of the poem by the illustrator or vice versa, where the poet is writing about the illustration. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Mm. I think we were lucky. Maybe we should have another poem. Charlotte Square. Facing due east, is the symmetrical facade of St George's Church. Adam's design discarded, yet harmonious, its coffered dome imposing on Edinburgh's skyline, it stands aloof from the traffic encircling the square. The din and fumes would be decked fillies once clopped. I jump back as a souped-up motorcycle zooms too close for comfort. In the garden are thousands of blue and yellow crocuses, where Lord Coburn stood to listen to the corncrakes in the dewy grass. Uh, I was wondering, Stuart, if you could um, expand upon an observation you make in an introduction to the book about the Newtown Squares. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you live outside Edinburgh, the Newtown is structured around a sequence of sort of squares with homes and houses around it, isn't it? That's fair to say, Stuart. So, and you saw a connection between the Newtown Squares and, and stanzas. What is that connection? The Charlotte Square poem itself is written in three formal quatrains and not complete full rhymes but part rhymes but it, it, it is very formal and keeps to a, a, a regular structure which my poetry has always tended instinctively to do. And 
On coming and feeling slightly displaced on arriving in Edinburgh, one thing oddly picking up directly in what you, you're saying was that I sensed somehow an affinity between the the formal grid, the rectilinear grid of Craig's new town with its squares and its whole formality with the poems that I made so that there somehow seemed an appropriateness. And this, this I suppose, was partly at a time when fashion was moving away from that and free verse was, was becoming more requested by magazine editors or, or in particular contexts. So it made me A, feel at home in this particular sector of Edinburgh, which I do stress is totally different from the old town, a different kettle of fish altogether, but also in a, in a, a confidence somehow in continuing what was my own modus operandi in poetry. One of the things that comes out nicely in the poems, as it does in Edinburgh itself, is a sense of living with and within different eras that sit beside each other. So you have just minutes from here, Arthur's Seat, that's a prehistory extinct volcano, and that's overlooking the old town, which sits next to the new town, which itself um, is, is neighbouring more modern uh, developments. And I think that's true poetry too, you know, as, as a poet, um, you must have the sense, you know, that your Edinburgh poems will be sitting next to poems written about Edinburgh from previous periods. That sort of sense of, um, of, of, of neighbourliness and, I guess, sort of layers as well, sitting on top of each other. Can I take advantage of that being a nice, complex question by reading two poems in response to I it? I think that would be a good idea, yeah. You, you quite, the timescale is extraordinary, the timescale going back to the whole volcanic presence visible outside the window here of Arthur's seat and the more recent both human and literary and social gradations and levels and awarenesses of the writers representing Edinburgh's past and in particular the Enlightenment. One poem covers the broad span. It's called Ice Age. Baltic this morning in Edinburgh declares an early caller to Radio 5 Live. The temperature's down to minus four, and the pavement's slippery, so what's your footing if you're out? I warn my wife, about to top up the birdseed, thinking that shortly after coming here, we'd a winter so hard that for days crowds of skiers and tobogganers hurtled unimpeded down Dundas Street. Old-timers recalling how Back in 63, basement dwellers had to dig themselves out. Their grandparents, in turn, no doubt claiming it was even more severe in their day. While much further into the past, a woolly mammoth's tusk found by workmen digging the Union Canal, supposedly used to clear the snow to find food. Another reminder of the great encroachment of ice, millennia ago, the lying couchant of Arthur's seat and the Salisbury crags scoured and shaped by glaciers into what constitutes today's imperious backdrop to the city. And the second part of your question took in the presence of, of these figures from the past who, in a strange way, I'm sure you find as much as I do, almost tangible figures today as we walk in the street. 
The main one for me in the new town and, and is, is Robert Louis Stevenson, whether he was crawling snail-like to school or whether he was setting off from Harriet Row to the ladies in Leith. And every time I think of him, I'm struck by his ubiquity and what I can only call his modernity. Footage of RLS. Fade in. Opening credits over wreathings of har, then South Seas Blue. A long shot of early removal from Howard Place, though still within reach of the effluent water of Leith. Cut to the grandeur of Harriet Row. Later, in flashback, the fevers and forebodings which presaged so much of his writing, that hacking cough banishing him to the land of counterpain. Subliminally in the background, blind pew tapping. Aerial shot of the Pentlands, dissolved to the Seven, where under starry skies he declares his desire for the woman he would marry. Clips of the Silverado days, his mountains of the moon, the icy cage of Davos. Superimposed on cascading pieces of eight, a ghostly hand writes to satisfy his demons and foot the bills for the hangers-on with their fancy tastes. That wistful Lloyd. Drifting in and out of shot, his dusky tiger lily. Jekyll and Hyde are playing in an adjoining auditorium, on split screen, of course. Rushes of Weir of Hermiston litter the cutting room floor. The life he is enacting smacks increasingly of a fiction. By the third reel, he seems to be yearning not for Belle, that's the B-movie, but for Alamur and Kirketon, places he knew he'd never see again. His Edinburgh long gone. So many poems and stories written for the shadow of the child he had been, part of a magic lantern show the dandy and buccaneer in him, exhausted. For the final scene, a double must have taken over. Those grieving Samoans hacking through jungle to lay him to rest on Mount Via. The lights come up. He sits, smiling, at the back of the cinema. We've been talking a lot about the new town, Stuart. Uh, I have to ask, as it's aspects of Edinburgh as a whole, is there old town poems in there too? I'm glad you asked that, because for a double reason. Firstly, this poem is not only set in the old town, but in the wake of my mention of Burns and Ferguson, the way it ends is, although not a linguistic, I hope, clearly an emotional genuflection to Ferguson. The other aspect of it is that it was triggered by an incident, something I saw as I was actually walking up from Colton Road on my way to the Scottish Poetry Library in the Canongate. At the top of Old Talbot's Wind, two figures in doublet and hose emerge, wearing green tricorns. Actors, no doubt, in some ghosty tour. But before I reach the archway, they've gone leaving me in the clatter of the cannon gate, pondering the Royal Mile's varied headgear down the centuries. Helmets and bearskins between St Giles and Holyrood, 
or to a dread drum roll from Torbooth to Grassmarket. The high constable's silk toppers, the white cockade of the Royal Company of Archers, the jester's cap and bells in many guises. The odd deer stalker or fore and aft, but the stock and trade bowler and skip bonnet ousted by baseball caps worn arsi versi. And this being a match day, I'm in danger of being swept away in a tide of tartanry and jimmy wigs. To escape the throng, I am drawn to Robert Ferguson's grave in the Canongate Kirkyard, unable to dispel the image of his mother visiting his cell shortly before his death, to find him lying adorned with a crown of bedraggled straw he had newly plated with his own hand. So it would be strange, while discussing uh, a collection of poetry called Aspects of Edinburgh, not to ask the author about his time as Edinburgh Marker. What was your response on being asked to be the Edinburgh Marker? One of total astonishment. I remember I was I had my computer in mid-poem when the phone went, and it was Paul Scott representing the panel who were responsible for the selection who said that there was to be an Edinburgh Micar, and I assumed that he was ringing to ask me to suggest people nominations and grabbed a pen and piece of paper when he announced that they were inviting me to do it. And for a millisecond I hesitated, but it wasn't any longer than that because everything in me realised it wasn't something I could possibly say no to. So I said yes, but at the same time, once I put the phone down, I had terrible qualms and almost rang back and said, no, I'm not sure about this. Three aspects of it. Firstly, I was aware that I hadn't been born in Edinburgh. Although, funnily enough, apart from Ron Butlin, my immediate successor, the other since have been Valerie Gillis, born in Canada, Christine DeLuca in Shetland, and Alan Spence, who is another Ouija. But even more than that, I was very aware that my poetry is not in Scots. And I can go back to the days, the days when Sidney Goodsell-Smith and Robert Garriach were, were part of the atmosphere one breathed. If in those days somebody had been appointed to the post who did not write in Scots, I think they would have been tarred and feathered, or at least barred from the Abbotsford. And in fact, the climate today, I, I could understand reservations on that count today. Anyway, nobody to my face raised it. The third was a worry, which you've touched on in the interview already, about the Edinburgh poems that I had or hadn't written myself. So part of the response, aside from the formal duties and the obligations and the commitments and the enthusiasms generated, was to hope that I could increase my own output. But I'm, I find it difficult. I find it difficult to respond to commission and to, to decree what I'm going to write. And although a number of the poems in Aspects of Edinburgh were written, it still left me feeling that there should be something other than that. There should be something that could almost be a tiny repayment of a debt for being the, the Makar, invited to be the Makar. And it came about in the most astonishing way. It came about, to my surprise, when I was reading for the, don't know how many of time, Dunbar's Lament for the Makars. 
I realise that two of the host of poets he elegises were Rule of Christophan and Rule of Aberdeen. And Rule of Christophan, obviously predeceasing de Bar, struck me as potentially Edinburgh's extant first poet. And I researched them in the, the National Library of Scotland, and apart from two stanzas attributed to Rule, but not specifying which Rule had written them, it left the way free to write what turned out to be a po poem sequence called Rule of Christophan, in which I described him as I visualised him, apostrophised him, let him speak in his own words about his children, his wife, about being at, at court, about Carver, because that was the wonderful spell of, of Renaissance music and poetry. And that, other than the poems and aspects of Edinburgh, or in conjunction with them, I think of being somehow coming within the title or the description of my Edinburgh poems. The, the, sequence, the, the, yeah. sequence, the sequence moves on and he addresses, his, as I imagined him, his cousin in Aberdeen. He describes a flighting at court. He talks about the building of the great Michael, the great ship. He addresses his wife. But the very beginning doesn't go into the complexities. It's, it's, it's called rule posited simply because this was a way of somehow setting out the cards with a view to writing the sequence. Whilst out hunting, King David, separated from his attendants, was heavily thrown and about to be gored by a heart with awful and braid tines, whereupon a cross placed miraculously in his hands, the beast fled. He endowed an abbey on the spot with the holy rood. Later, on a narrow isthmus, founded the chapel of Christophan. A sail sanct for the croon, maybe, and more Norman than Scott, but for all that, the father of the fatherless, best of his kind. From then on, the monks fed the poor. For three centuries later, Adam Forrester, twice the provost of Edinburgh, would lie in effigy, arms crossed, his armorial bearings, three buffalo horns, stringed. Could Rule have taken holy orders here, catching carp or brewing ale for the brothers, penning verse from Matins to Compline, at the last to drown in the brimming lee? Or did gentle denote a patient domine, instilling through Wintoon's chronicles pride of nationhood, a concept of chivalry in many later to be slain in battle? No way of telling if he was a plague victim, or survived to old age, extolled his mistress in royal rhyme stanzas, or caught nature in cantering couplets. Yet that one naming by Dunbar, enough to make him, allowing for the trudge from the castle, the cleansing water of Leith between, the capital's earliest recorded poet. And that about wraps up another episode in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. Some thank yous before we go. So, number one thank you should go to Stuart Conn for coming into the library and talking about Aspects of Edinburgh, which is published by Scotland Street Press. Uh, thank you number two goes to you, dear listener, for tuning in again. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll have another podcast out next month, fingers crossed. And the third thank you goes to Will Campbell, who wrote, recorded, produced, did everything on a piece of music that tops and tails the show. Thank you, Will. 
Uh, before I go, just some reminders of how you can keep in touch with the Scottish Poetry Library between podcasts. So first and most obviously, we have our website, www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. It's regularly updated, so there's always something fun to find on it. Uh, we do social media. Of course we do social media. We do Twitter. Our Twitter tag is at By Leaves We Live. We have a Facebook page. Just type in Scottish Poetry Library to the Facebook search engine. I'm, I'm sure you'll turn us up eventually. And we have an Instagram page, which can be found at SPL Scotland, all one word. And that brings us to the end of the end of another episode of the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. I shall merely wish you uh, a fond adieu and hand you over to Stuart for one last poem. On Colton Hill. They populate the skyline, some in furry boots, others precarious on stilettos. Woolly bonnets, the order of the day, yet the lassie skirts so short you can all but see their bottoms. Couples incessantly photographing themselves against the consenting city. At one point, an elderly Japanese gentleman bows courteously, says, Excuse me, then grasps my wife by both arms and firmly moves her sideways, so that with no need to change his vantage point, his view is unimpeded. The National Monument, that never-completed Parthenon with its stone slabs, is a constant source of attraction. Its imposing structure strung with sagging saltires and banners, one group handing out leaflets, another lighting a brazier as if by rote, all part of an age-old ritual. As the shadows lengthen, we become aware of singing. A backward glance reveals happy youngsters gyrating in the sun's rays, while its fluted columns seem to bend in the light. A moment later, the har rolls in, erasing the slopes and paths below, then the world around us, undoing time. A headless Montrose, Deacon Brodie, Porteous creaking on his rope, interweaving with such fictions as Jekyll and Hyde, and the occupants of not just the city's dungeons, but the reaches of our imagination. Each footfall striking a chord, inducing fear of absorption, as though a giant cat were about to lap us up with its soft, moist tongue. Instead, the mist miraculously clears. It's as though the city were unveiling, the setting sun discharging quivering rays of light. The castle rock caught in such effulgence the walls seem to levitate, only in no time to be consigned to darkness. But glance northwest. A span of the fourth bridge is just visible. Scotland spread out beyond like a great plaid. Edinburgh, the glistening clasp that fastens it, that pins it in place. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook. <laughs>